When I began seminary, I was 23. I was young, but also naive. I didn't know much. And before I got to Westminster, it's the same school that Pastor John and I went. Before I got there, some of my older mentors, pastors who have gone before me, um, they warned us. They warned me specifically saying, if you, if you slack off, you are not going to be able to graduate. I totally underestimated seminary. I mean, I remember as I was getting ready to go, preparing myself to, to attend Westminster, I, I remember telling myself, like, how bad could it be? How hard could seminary actually be? But I should have definitely listened to their advice because there's a reason why Westminster Theological Seminary is also known as Westminster Theological Cemetery. If you're not careful. So I go, and my first year, I was actually commuting from New York every weekend because I was serving at my home church in New York. So me and my friend, we were roommates, and we, we graduated seminary together. We got ordained together. And so we did, every, we did all the things together, all the important steps. Um, we were commuting together because we were serving at the same home church. And I remember we had our first ever midterm coming up. Totally did not study for this. And my, our thing was, okay, during the week, we have, we have too much stuff going on at school, and we can't, we can't st- study and prepare enough. And, and then the weekends, and, and to make things worse, we didn't have time to study during the weekends because we're busy, you know, doing ministry. So we left New York. I still remember that, that Sunday evening. The goal was to get to uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, our home by, by midnight and, and start frantically, you know, cramming. That was our goal. So we get there. And then I open my notes, I'm glancing, I'm cramming, and, and then I tell myself, you know, how bad could it be, right? And it can't be that bad. So I log, it was an online exam, we have to uh, finish it by Monday morning. So I log on well after midnight, and first question, I don't know. Second question, I don't know. Third question, I don't know. And I remember telling myself, I am doomed. <laughs> if you don't know the first few questions, that's going to be a long exam for you. So I yelled across the room saying, hey, I think I'm going to fail. <laughs> so at that, moment, at that point, he also, you know, it hits him. You know, this is a lost cause. We can't cram. I'm not going to be able to cram. So he logs in and he signs up. And then after looking at a couple, couple questions and he yells back, I'm going to fail too. <laughs> so the following morning, we show up to class. And before he began lecture, he actually gave a breakdown of how everyone did, how the class did. He said, there are a handful of you who got A's. Most of you got, you know, B's. And there's two of you. <laughs> so at that moment, you know, me and my friend were looking at each other. So the two of you got below 60. I don't know who you are, but you need to start studying. <laughs> that was a much-needed wake-up call for both of us. Um, and and just, to, just to, you know, for the record, we didn't fail that class. We didn't flunk out of seminary or, or else I wouldn't be here. But that was a much-needed wake-up call. But I remember feeling like a complete failure after that midterm to the point that I let the, my numerical grade redefine my identity. And I didn't like running into that professor during that semester because, like, every time I saw him in the hallway, I, I ran. because like, oh, he made me feel like a complete failure. <laughs> Just simply being in his presence made me feel very uncomfortable. It's like, ah. Oh. He didn't know that it was me, but I knew it was me that I had failed Miserably, a complete failure. You know, when was the last time you felt like a complete failure? As a student, 
Maybe you don't need to look very far, maybe this week. As a coworker, as a parent, when was the last time you felt like a complete failure as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you came to church this afternoon feeling like a complete failure because of what is happening in your life, what you are going through right now, maybe because of the, some of the habitual sins that you have in your life. Perhaps you have been feeling like a complete failure for a really, really, really long time because of what might have happened in the past, because of your past mistakes. If, you, if that is you this afternoon, I want to encourage you by saying, don't worry, because you are not alone. You are not alone. And if, if that's how you are feeling this afternoon, this message is especially for you. And I sincerely pray and hope that this message will encourage you comfort you as it reminds you of the Savior's love for us. Now, during this message, we'll be focusing on the following three points, the love that pursues, the love that restores, and the love that recommissions. So let's jump in first into the the first point, the love that pursues. So this encounter that we see in in our passage this afternoon between Jesus and the disciples takes place after the resurrection. The Gospel of John reminds us that this is actually the third time Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. As it is recorded in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, on the day of resurrection, Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And on that same evening, he appeared to the disciples, which is mentioned in John 20, verses 19 to 23. And eight days later, he appears to the disciples for the second time, which is recorded in John 20, 24 through 29. And Jesus appears to the disciples for the third time by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the context of our passage this afternoon. Now, Jesus, during this third appearance, he has an agenda. And we're going to see him intentionally pursuing Peter in love. And before he ascends to heaven, he wanted to make sure that he ministers to Peter in person. And there is a reason why he wanted to do that. Because Jesus knew what had happened, what Peter had done before crucifixion. What did he do? He denied Christ, not just once, but twice, three times, right? He denied his Lord and Savior three times. And because Jesus knows how that incident has changed Peter, For the worse, especially how he began to view himself. Because Jesus knows the condition of Peter's utterly broken heart. Because Jesus knows that Peter is drowning in guilt and shame. Because Jesus knows how Peter is feeling at this point. Like a complete, utter failure. So undeserving, unworthy, and disqualified to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see him intentionally going after, pursuing after Peter's broken heart. Now, verse 15 tells us that after finishing breakfast, we're going to see Jesus getting up close and personal with Peter by doing this, by initiating an intimate conversation with him. Now, this conversation is going to catch Peter by surprise, but not only that, it's going to make him extremely uncomfortable. Why is that? Hold that thought as we move along. Now, I want to draw your attention to the fact that this conversation is taking place in front of a charcoal fire, which is mentioned in verse 9. 
They were sharing breakfast together, right? But this was all part of Jesus' plan. Jesus could have had this conversation with Peter anywhere else. But we see Jesus waiting until at this moment to have this specific conversation with Peter in front of this charcoal fire. And the question is, why? And why is this important? Now, I want all of us to turn to John chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. And as you read along, please pay careful attention because it will help you to understand the point that I'm trying to make here. John 18, verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of, the, one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. See, for Peter, this charcoal fire was a painful reminder. This charcoal fire was a visible reminder of his past mistake. How he had denied his Lord and Savior three times in public. Now, as he is gazing into this charcoal fire, brings him back to that dreadful night when he denied Jesus, whom he loved dearly three times in public. It was deeply ingrained in his memory. Think about it. How could he possibly forget after denying Christ on that dreadful night three times? He even went out and wept bitterly, as we are told. And he definitely does not want to talk or even think about this traumatic experience. He cracked under pressure, and it forever changed him. I mean, it shook him to the core of his being. And then the words, I do not know this man, I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ, probably kept him up at night. Many sleepless nights. It literally rocked this world upside down. It forever changed him especially how he viewed himself. He had failed miserably, and now he was a complete, utter failure. He could only wish that this never happened. And since that dreadful night, he couldn't help but to keep telling himself, beating himself with these words, I'm a traitor. I betrayed my Lord and Savior I will be remembered as the one who denied Christ three times. Now, the question is this. How did Peter end up here? I mean, something must have happened to him. Because before Jesus was getting arrested, we see Jesus approaching Peter and actually telling him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Do you remember what Peter told Jesus in response? He actually said these words. Though they all fall away from you, because of you, I will never fall away. Those were his words. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Lord, I am ready to go to prison and to death with you. I will lay down my life for you. These were his words. And he said it boldly. 
But then how do you go from that to, I do not know this man? How do you go from, I will not deny you, I will die for you? How do you go from that to, I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you remember when Jesus was being betrayed by Judas and being, and being arrested to be taken, to be crucified? Remember there was a one disciple who stood up for Jesus, came to his defense, drew his sword, and then struck one of the guards, cutting off his ear. Remember? Do you know who that was? That was Peter. But how do you go from that to this? Something must have happened, right? What happened to Peter? What caused Peter to deny Christ three times in public? The answer is this, fear of man. Fear of man. And the fear of man, also known as people-pleasing or peer pressure, forces you to become someone you are not. Peer pressure, fear of men, will make you do things that you, would, would, you wouldn't normally do and say things that you would not normally say. Also, fear of men on the flip side will prevent you, keep you from doing things that you would normally do and say things that you would normally say. In a nutshell, this is what happened to Peter, right? What was once unthinkable became thinkable. What was once undoable became doable. What was once unacceptable became acceptable. And what was once unimaginable became imaginable. That's what happened to Peter. He caved in to fear of man and ended up doing something he will regret for the rest of his life. You know, you might be thinking as you're sitting here thinking about this passage, you know, it's easy for us to point fingers in Peter and say, like, how could he do that? How could he possibly deny his Lord and Savior three times after saying all that? How can he betray him like that, compromise like that? Then this is the thing. It happened to Peter. It could also happen to you. It could also happen to me. It could also happen to us. We are not immune because we're all sinners by nature. And we will experience moments like this when we will find ourselves, whether directly or, or indirectly, Denying our Lord and Savior. Maybe not just with our words, but with our actions. And then find ourselves in a place where we feel like a complete failure, just like where Peter is in this passage. You know, as the spiritual landscape of our nation continues to change, I do believe that it's going to be increasingly more difficult and challenging for us to stand up for the gospel and to live faithfully and courageously with boldness for Jesus Christ. It's going to be that much more challenging for us. And I know for sure that along the way, we are going to fall. When things get difficult, we may compromise. We may give in just to be able to fit in. Because you don't want to be too passionate because that will make your life a little bit too uncomfortable. And along the way, I'm, I'm willing to bet that we will find ourselves like Peter, feeling like complete failures. And this is why we desperately need God's rescuing and restoring love. Which leads me to my next point, the love that restores. You know, Peter has absolutely no idea that the conversation that he's about to have with Jesus Christ will have a deep and lasting impact on his life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And try to picture this. In front of this charcoal fire, which is a visible reminder of his past mistake, right? A painful reminder. Jesus, we see Jesus asking Peter the same question three times, but while gazing into 
his eyes. Verse 15, 16, 17, right? Jesus asked Peter the same question three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Try to put yourself in Peter's shoes here. He's probably very uncomfortable right now. Because this fire in front of him is a visible reminder that he's a failure. But not only that, he's having eye contact with Christ. But now why do I uh, draw your attention to the fact that you know, Christ is gazing into his eyes? Well, if you turn to Luke 22, verses 60 to 62, this is that dreadful night where Peter had denied Christ. This is what, this is what it, uh, it says. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. In in verse 61, very important. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. On that dreadful night, he had eye contact. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, as, he's, as Peter's listening to these questions being uttered by Christ three times, and as he's looking at this fire and having this eye contact, he can't help but to feel worse. I'm a failure. I am such a mess. But we do see Peter reluctantly responding to those questions, right? Verse 15, 16, and 17. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know, when we read these verses in our English translation, nothing really stands out. But if we read these same verses in its original language in Greek, we will be able to, uh, we will be able to notice something uh, special, especially the Greek word for love. In Greek, there are specific words for different types of love. First, there is the agape love, which is the way God loves us. God's perfect, sacrificial, unconditional love. That's how he loves us, right? But there's also the phileo love, which refers to the strong, deep affections between two close friends, companions. It's not, phileo love is not the love that you show towards your enemies. This is only between um, close companions and close friends. Now, in Greek... And I want to draw your attention to this. For in verse 15, during that first question, Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me more than these? But notice how Peter responds to Jesus' question. He doesn't say, Lord, I agape love you. He says, Lord, I phileo love you. Let's go to the second question. Jesus asks the same question. Peter, do you agape love me? Peter responds by saying, Jesus, I phileo love you. Now, verse 17, something interesting happens. Now, Jesus, instead of using the word agape, he actually says, Peter, do you phileo love me? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, you know everything. I phileo love you. Now, what is going on here? This is what's happening. Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, can you agape love me? Can you love me like the way I truly deserve to be loved as your Lord and Savior? And after hearing that, Peter can say that. And especially now, 
after denying Christ three times, feeling like a complete failure, he can't say, Lord, I agape love you. He will never be able to do that. So all he can say is, I phileo love you. This is the best that I can offer. In my brokenness, I will phileo love you. So Jesus asks again, can you agape love me as your Lord and Savior? Peter says, I can't. I can't love you that way. But I will love you this way. I'll phileo love you in, in all that I can. In my best abilities, this is all I can offer you. And in verse 1, Jesus asks, then can you phileo love me? I know that you will never be able to love me perfectly. I know that you will never, ever be able to, to love me in the way that I deserve to be loved. I know that. Yeah. Then, but can you phileo love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. And he's referring to his past mistake. And all the mistakes that he will make even after this encounter. It's like, Lord, you know everything. But I will continue to phileo love you. Because this is the best that I can offer. This is the only way that I can love you because I can never love you like the way you truly deserve to be loved because I'm a broken sinner. So what's happening? Now, he didn't, Jesus didn't ask this question to, to make him feel bad, to shame him, to criticize him, to make an example out of him, to embarrass No, that's not the point here. Jesus is going after Peter's broken heart to let him know, I know that you will never be able to agape love me, but I will agape love you until the end. And that does not change. That does not change. You will fail me, but I will not fail you. Promising once again his unfailing love towards Peter. Now the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Why did Jesus question Peter three times? Why ask Peter the same question three times? Was it necessary? If you look at verse 17... We were told that as Peter heard the same question for the third time, he was grieved. He was grieved. Because at that point, he was, he was pretty much convinced that a Christ no longer believes that, that I'm worthy to follow him, that I can never, ever love him. He was deeply grieved. But you see here, Jesus is going after the very thing that hurts Peter the most. But get this, this is, but this is the most loving thing that Jesus can do for Peter. You know, since that dreadful night when he had denied Jesus three times, Peter was never the same again. I mean, it was a, such a traumatic experience that it affected every aspect of his being, his thoughts, his feelings, and his actions. And he went schizophrenic, spiritually. From that point on, he wasn't able to dis- differentiate what is real and what is not real. Because he let his emotions, his own opinions, what is subjective, shape and dictate how he will live out the rest of his life and how he will see himself. You know, I'm sure most of you have seen the movie Inception. Yes? You know, in the beginning scene, Cobb, the main, one of the main characters played by Leonardo DiCaprio, this is what he says. What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm, an idea, resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate an idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. And even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define 
or destroy you. There was this idea that had, begin, that had begun to grow in Peter's heart and mind since that dreadful night. And it was based on his thoughts and feelings and emotions about himself. I'm a complete failure. I'm unworthy and undeserving to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I am unlovable. Christ will never love me the same again. And this idea eventually redefined Peter and it eventually ended up destroying him. But here we see, we see Jesus allowing Peter his three opportunities to reconfess his love for his Savior. Here Jesus gives Peter three chances to reconfess his love for his Lord and Savior. In John Bloom, in his book, Not By Sight, referring to this passage, he, he writes this, Jesus had not doubted Peter's love at all. Rather, he had allowed Peter to confess his love for every wretched denial he had made on that dreadful night. Jesus' grace was overwhelming. Now do you see what Jesus is doing for Peter here? He's not just asking Peter the same question three times randomly to make him feel bad. It's all intentional. It's all part of his plan as he is pursuing him in love in order to restore him and to recommission him. But get this. From now on, as Peter looks at a charcoal fire, which was once a painful reminder of of the mistake that he had made, denying Christ three times, but from this moment onward, as he gazed into this charcoal fire, He will not be reminded of his past mistake, but he will be reminded of his Savior's love for him. You see what Jesus is doing for Peter here? He came to restore him, and he came to recommission him, which leads to my next point, the love that recommissions. Do you know what Peter did after denying Christ three times? You know, feeling so unworthy and undeserving, feeling so disqualified, feeling like a complete failure, he went back to fishing. I mean, that's what, that's what he was doing, right? Before Christ called him to follow him as his disciple, that was his occupation. He was a fisherman. Feeling like a failure, he went back to fishing, which is mentioned in John 21.3. And when Jesus showed up by the Sea of Tiberias, I mean, Peter was fishing, because he felt so unworthy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But this is the thing, as some commentators actually make a note of this. Now, how can you, even after personally witnessing the risen Savior, the resurrected Lord, how can you go back to fishing? Peter saw the, the, the resurrected Lord three times. But even after seeing him, how do you go back to fishing? It's because he felt like a complete failure. And he couldn't overcome that. He let what was subjective, his own opinions, his own feelings about himself, right? Redefine who he is to the point that that idea, which he had been feeding in his mind and heart, grew up to eventually destroy him, right? But through, throughout all of this, there's one thing that remained constant, which is Christ's love for him. 
Notice what Jesus says to Peter after he asks Peter, do you love me, right? And after giving Peter three chances to reconfess his love for him, what does Jesus say? He gives three commands, right? Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. And in verse 19, follow me, follow me. As you can see, Jesus didn't come to make an example out of Peter of what not to do if you want to follow me. That wasn't the case. Jesus came pursuing him intentionally in love to restore him and to recommission him. But you know what the cool thing is? As he is having this conversation here by the Sea of Tiberias, this is actually the very first place where he was first commissioned to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus said, Peter, follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. This was the very first place where he had been commissioned for the very first time. Now, what does this say about the way our God loves his people? That he meets us in the place of our failures. And he will restore us. But not only that, after reminding us of his unfailing love for us, he will recommission us for kingdom ministry, for gospel ministry. Because he takes absolute delight, not just in you, but he takes delight in using you, working powerfully in and through you for his kingdom. And this is what Jesus does for Peter here, right? He gets recommissioned for the second time for gospel ministry. John Bloom in his book, Not By Sight Again, this is what he writes. When Jesus chose us to be his disciples, he foresaw our future failures as sure as he foresaw Peter's. We may be surprised by our own depravity, but Jesus isn't. The church of Jesus Christ is a fellowship of forgiven failures. In Peter, Jesus shows us how he can transform a failure into a rock of strength for his church. Now do you see what Jesus is doing for Peter? This conversation, this entire conversation, this entire setting was all intentional part of God's plan to set him free from that past mistake, to release him for kingdom ministry after restoring him and letting him know how much he loves him and that that does not change. Now, when you look at your own life, what do you see? What do you see? Do you see brokenness? Do you see chaos, mess? Maybe all you can see is your past failures, your past mistakes. Perhaps these things have been haunting you even to this day. What is your charcoal fire? What is that very thing that keeps reminding you of your failures? Things that keep you from following Christ. Things that make you feel so disqualified, so undeserving and unloving that these things get in the way of you running to Christ in in those desperate moments of need, clinging to him, fixing your eyes upon him, following him. What is that thing? What is your charcoal fire? And I want to encourage you by saying this, you know, don't let whatever that is redefine who you are, your identity. Because the gospel clearly reminds broken sinners like you and me that that we are loved, that we are forgiven, 
that we have been adopted into his kingdom. It's not because we can live a perfect life. It's not because we can agape love God. But it's because God agape loves us and went to the cross and died for us, became sin for us, that our sins, past, present, and future have been nailed to the cross. And on that cross, he uttered these words, it is finished. That does not change. Our identity is grounded in what is objective, the gospel truth, the gospel reality. That does not change. We may feel like failures as we go through the ups and downs of the Christian life, but that is what is subjective. Our Christian walk, our Christian life is grounded in ultimately what is objective, the gospel, what God says, who we are. So don't let those things, don't let your charcoal fire dictate how you live your life as a Christian. Don't let that, whatever that is, shape your upcoming days, weeks, months, seasons, even years to the point that you're just drowning in guilt and shame, feeling like failure. Because you bought into the lie the devil has been whispering to your ears, why will Christ love you? Look at your life. But that is not true. It's not true. Remember what Christ has done for Peter, and he wants to do the same for you, especially if you have been feeling like Peter. If you came to church this afternoon feeling like Peter. Remember the famous hymn, which goes something like this, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But then because of the gospel, because of Christ, because our lives are in his hands, and I love how one of the Christian authors puts it this way. His name is Jared Wilson, and he writes, because he lives, I can face yesterday. Because he lives, because he went to the cross on my behalf, bearing my sins past, present, and future, I no longer have to be haunted by my past. I could actually look in my past and look to the cross and thank God for the work that he is doing in my life. Thank God for rescuing me from that, setting me free from that, right? And when God sees you, he he doesn't see your mess. He doesn't see your brokenness. God sees Christ in you. He sees Christ living in you. And then the work that God began in our lives, we may not be able to see it clearly, and especially during those moments as we are going through a seasons of brokenness when we feel like utter failures. But then the work that he began, he will finish at the day of Jesus Christ, and that does not change. And God will remain faithful to us in spite of our failures, and he will continue to agape love us. And that does not change. How do you think Peter lived out the rest of his life after this encounter? He died for Jesus. He literally died for Jesus. To give you an example, in Acts 4, we are told that Peter and John, they get arrested. And they're standing before the Sanhedrin because they're preaching Christ. They're standing before them, and if you look at Acts 4.13, this is what we are told. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with 
Jesus. There was nothing special about Peter and John, but at least they were able to say there's something different about them in a sense that they must have been with Jesus. I mean, they're preaching Christ, but I'm willing to bet that it's because of the way they have been living. Remember that dreadful night? Peter wanted to make sure that he, he wanted to be known not as a disciple. And he actually tried very hard not to side with Christ, right? He denied Christ three times. But here in Acts 4, as he is standing before the Sanhedrin, he doesn't even have to say anything. They look at his life. They look at him and say, oh, he's been with Jesus. There's no doubt about that. And that goes on to, sh- that goes on to show just how he lived out the rest of his life to his dying day, being martyred for Christ. And now you see what this intimate encounter in front of a charcoal fire has done for Peter. No longer stuck, but now after being recommissioned for the second time, once again being reminded of Savior's unfailing love for him, he lived out the rest of his life for Christ, gladly laying down his life. And he wants to do the same for you, especially if you feel stuck because of a certain mistake in the past or maybe even your current struggles because he doesn't want you to be there. He wants to set you free to live in a way so that your lives will be filled with more of Acts 14 moments. That when people see you, they will know that you belong to Christ. They will know that you have been with Jesus, that you have been walking faithfully with Jesus. And I pray that to be the case more and more as we continue to follow Christ imperfectly because we can never do that perfectly. We're all sinners by nature. But especially in those moments when we feel like failures, that is what is subjective, right? That's what the gospel says. Gospel is what, what is objective. That we will once again be reminded, especially here in this context where God is, when in Jesus has ministered to Peter, with that in mind, let, let, let's ask God to help us so that his love will continue to compel us to live in a way so that people will know that we belong to him. Let's follow him. Let's continue to follow him, trusting him. And in those moments of failures, I pray that you will hear these same words that Christ has uttered to Peter. Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Thank you that your grace is more than sufficient for all of our needs. Father, we thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for your unfailing love. Father, we know that we will continue to fall short of your glory, that we will continue to break your hearts as we compromise and as we continue to walk away in difficult moments. But I pray that as we have seen through this passage how you have ministered to to Peter's broken heart and reminding him of your unfailing love and how you have restored him and how you have recommissioned him. Father, I pray for all of us here, especially for those who are feeling like Peter, feeling like complete failures, feeling so disqualified to follow you, perhaps because of what is happening in their lives now or because of a haunting past, past mistakes and failures. God, wherever they may be, Lord, I know that you see them. Would you meet them where they are? Would you continue to pursue them in love, 
and restore them and recommission them for kingdom ministry and for gospel ministry. Thank you for loving us this way. Thank you for loving us this much. Thank you that our lives are in your your hands. In Christ's name we pray.